Thank you for listening to this Belly Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we go belly up, so we made it our name. And we're still here. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. What up? This is episode eight of In the Can podcast, which is part of the Barnburner Podcast Network, where we discuss movies, TV, pop culture, uh, and all those sort of related things, as we like to say, as the city assholes, the world likes to call them films. This is The Chief, and I'm joined by the man, the myth, the legend, the sloth. You know him as Inquisitive Sloth. I know him as Peace Corps Protector, a.k.a. Steve. Steve, how's it going, man? What have you been up to? Sam, appreciate you having me on the podcast, man. Yeah, man. I can't believe we haven't done it yet. This is exciting. It's surprising. I agree. You know, I've been busy protecting Peace Corps. I don't even know what that means. Peace Corps protector. Uh, protecting like the faith of the Peace Corps. Yeah. I am. Yeah. I doubt. I don't think that that's true. But yeah, yeah, yeah I, I was in Peace Corps. I actually just finished. I think I told you that. Yeah, it's exciting. Yeah, that is exciting. But well, no, I appreciate you inviting me on the show. I'm a big fan. As you know, I'm a sloth, uh, occasional contributor to the Barn Burner Network. The articles there. I haven't been on in a little while, but in the meantime, hopping on a call with you, talk movies. I can do this. Good. Looking forward to it. Uh, also, looking forward to the next inquisitive sloth piece to pop up uh, for those that don't know. He usually writes about some of the interesting stuff going on in Memphis, some of the cultural and civic stuff going on in the city, and um, you know, politically wise, or even speaking with, uh, what they might do with buildings downtown. So, mm. um, for, if you're a Memphis fan, which most of us are at the barn, uh, definitely check out his stuff. So we look forward to the next thing. Now, Steve, first I gotta, I gotta tell you a little parable, man, and see how you react. Okay. Um, two little mice fell into a bucket of cream. The first mouse quickly gave up and drowned. The second mouse wouldn't quit. He struggled so hard that he turned that cream into butter and crawled out. Now, which mouse are you, Steve? I'm the one that churred that cream into butter. So, oh, so you consider yourself a hard worker, huh? I do. I do. You know what? Actually, before we even get really into this, Sam, can I tell you a joke? You can. Go ahead. Yeah? All right. Knock, knock. Who's there? Go fuck yourself. Oh, man. I didn't see that one coming at all. Uh, but, uh, did. For you movie fans <laughs> that haven't already figured it out, we're talking 2002's Catch Me If You Can, uh, which is directed by the infamous Steven Spielberg, starring Leonardo DiCaprio, Tom Hanks, um, and a movie that was initially well-received. I mean, certainly it got good reviews and it was up for a few Oscars, but I feel like it's kind of like not talked about a lot. It's not often uh, presented when you talk about the 2000s good movies. You know, I, I feel like Minority Report, which is another Spielberg movie, and this movie came out the same year, and those are two under underrated Spielberg movies um, that a lot of people don't talk about. Why do you think that is? I'm not really sure, to be honest, uh, potentially because it didn't make a lot of waves. 
you know, it, it was also one of those under the radar Christmas movies. This is something I didn't really put together until the second time I watched it. That that is the way that Die Hard is set in a Christmas time, and this was released during the Christmas season. It's one of those movies that people just see and enjoy, but don't really talk very much about. But when you bring it up to somebody, they go, "Yeah." I like that movie. I haven't right. seen that in a while. I need to check that out again. And right. I think those are some of the best movies. They're not the blockbusters. They're the ones that you just sit back, you enjoy, and you, when it comes on, you're, you're happy. Yeah, it's definitely a TNT movie. It's one yeah. you see it on, you put it on, and it's always in the background. That's it's something awesome. that if I see it on, I'll, I'll always click on it and put it on the background. And yeah, you're right. Like You mentioned it to anybody. They'll always say, like, oh, yeah, I remember liking that movie a lot. But then the funny part is we're like, well, yeah, but you know, what, you know, what do you like about it? Maybe you prod a little bit further and – they're like, oh, I don't remember. I just remember like having fun, and that's really all you need from this movie. You don't need yeah. some deep metaphor. It's just a fun movie. Yeah, honestly, I had actually, I couldn't think of the first time I had seen the beginning of that movie uh, until I rewatched it again on Netflix. I was like, I forgot entirely about Christopher Walken's original scenes of kind of like teaching him the ways of manipulating people, kind of uh, being a, a flirt to some of the bank tellers and, mm-hmm. you know, pulling out that, that necklace uh, that you later see in the, in the movie, Leonardo trying to follow in his father's footsteps a little bit. So there's a kind of an interesting part of the movie that you usually miss with the, when it pops up on TNT, but it's a vital part for you to really understand the complexities of it. Well, when you first proposed this to, uh, for the podcast, I thought, that's interesting. But then I, when I rewatched it, I was like, oh, this is such a Steve movie. <laughs> this is like this hits all the Steve highlights, the greatest hits I like to call them. You got, you know, the, the harm, a, a charming main character. You got some con stuff going on in there. Some reading people, manipulating people. I was like, I bet young Steve just ate up everything Walken's character had to say. Uh, and 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 maybe I don't, you know, don't want to draw a comparison to maybe stuff your dad may or may not have taught you. I don't know if your dad ever taught you the necklace thing, but uh, you know, I, I feel like this really resonated with you as a kid. Is this a favorite movie of yours? It. I wouldn't say it's a favorite movie of mine. It falls exactly into the category we just spoke about. It's one of those movies that when it's on, I'm absolutely going to sit down and watch it. And funny enough, uh, people listening to this obviously don't know, I just recently got engaged to uh, a Paraguayan. I've been in service at Peace Corps in Paraguay. She had seen this movie originally, which I find so funny <laughs> that a Paraguayan has, has watched a movie like this. And she really enjoyed it as well, but she didn't pick up on a lot of the nuances of the manipulating people and, and the kind of revenge aspect of the movie that I also kind of failed to see until uh, you start kind of studying it a little bit and seeing that the anger that Leonardo DiCaprio has of watching his father fall from grace. Right. Yeah, it is. We're going to go, I'm going to get this back. And at such a young age before he turns 18, he, yeah has stolen over a million dollars of Ford, excuse me, you know, forged checks to that extent is impressive. And yeah, and, and anybody would consider this to be a very entertaining, um, kind of motivating movie in a sense that you can, the rules don't apply to you. You're pushing it back against the establishment. Anybody that finds that attractive is going to love this movie. Uh, yeah, I agree. That's true. Uh, it's a movie that really benefits on rewatch too, uh, mostly because of that, what you just talked about. It's a, it's a movie that initially you watch and you have fun. You're like, oh, it's a fun con man movie. But really, that's kind of in the background. The, the movie's really not about that necessarily. We'll get a little more into that later. But I guess I'll start with a quick plot description in case you haven't seen this movie. Uh, obviously, spoilers. We're going to be talking the plot in detail. But this is a movie. Uh, DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio plays Frank Agnew Jr., who is a real-life person. So this is a kind of a half-biopic, like, 
of course, they took some liberties with the plot, but he was essentially a, a con man, a swindler prodigy. He was a check fraud mastermind. Um, so the movie kind of takes you through his life, how he got to be there, the crimes he committed, uh, juxtaposed with Tom Hanks' character, Carl Hanratty, who's an FBI agent, works in the check fraud department, who essentially chases DiCaprio throughout, throughout the entire movie. They kind of become each other's passion projects. And, uh, and it's sort of a cat and mouse, con man, fun drama, family drama movie uh, with a lot of different genres mixed in there. But it's certainly a, it's a, it's a fun, very spielberg type movie. Uh, how do you feel about that, Steve? You think it's a good plot description? Oh, yeah, no, you hit it right on the, on the head there. I think also really throwing in the fact that it's got the, the holiday touch. I think that's something that I really didn't, ex- didn't notice until I started researching this a little bit more. I was like, oh, it was like re- released in December of 2002, correct? Yeah. So it just it kind of flew under the radar. You know, Christmas movies are real hit and miss, and they usually follow kind of a similar structure. This one, it just has a very slight touch of the holiday, right? The, the calls between Hanratty and, and Abignale. Yeah. Uh, and, and then, and, you know, the climax of the movie essentially happening on Christmas Eve. But, yeah, uh, that, that plot description kind of sums it up just then. You know, a funny point uh, to make is that the – you know, this is obviously based off of a book, right? Uh, more or less biography of an individual, but that book was actually like more of a story of this person's life. So uh, the original Frank Abagnale said that about 80% of the movie is, is more or less accurate. Uh, the rest of it is not so much. I'm kind of curious what aspect of it is because in real life, he did have a good relationship with, with that FBI agent. Um, and as we did in the movie, but I'm curious what aspects were exaggerated uh, cinematically. I don't know. I don't. I, I read that as well. I, I don't know what specific scenes were, but I feel like in true Abagnale fashion, he'll never reveal that. You know, I feel like he'll keep that close to the chest and never yeah. reveal which parts were the most accurate, and which parts were totally just movie quality dramatized or what. But so, what did you now? What did you find were some some themes in this movie? I know we discussed Christmas. That Christmas it, it is a very uh, it's bait. A lot of the focal point scenes are set around Christmas. There's some like uh, carols in the background at certain points. And um, a lot of like Oscar type movies get released around Christmas too, whether or not they're related to the holiday. But this one does have that kind of theme going throughout. I think it's, yeah, it's a fun comedy movie, but it, it's, it's really a movie about divorce and broken homes. Um, even Hanratty has like a broken home. You know, he's estranged from his, uh, his wife and daughter. He's a workaholic. Uh, a lot of these characters are in rest, arrested development. They're kind of the same people they were whenever some life event happened that altered the course. So I feel like DiCaprio, he does all these things that adults might do. He's really intelligent, uh, having nailed the character. But he's still always that you know, 15-, 16-year-old kid that really wants his parents to get back together. Exactly. Uh, so I think that's kind of the, that's the, the, the human element that we can all latch on to as an audience when there's the fun comment stuff that kind of is the background. What, what other stuff did you notice when you upon your uh, your rewatch? Well, yeah, I mean, the, that's certainly the case, right? Like he's trying to repair a broken home in a sense, and he thinks that going out and kind of rebelling against the establishment, grabbing this money back, that's what caused the the, the separation between his parents, right? So, in a sense, it's sort of like a coming of age story. Yeah? Him following in his father's footsteps, doing saying a lot of the things that his father had said that he'd heard him say as a child, and. Uh, kind of acting the way that he saw his dad acting uh, with the bank tellers and whatnot. But I also say, you know, this as an overarching theme is kind of a common thing, like the man versus himself, because you kind of see him slowly spiraling out of control. 
right? And he recognizes it. Uh, he even says what in that one scene in the, in the restaurant with his dad, he's like, ask me to stop, ask me to stop. He says, like, you can't stop. It's, it's, a uh, an addictive trait to the movie that I think could go unnoticed if you don't kind of, cause they don't highlight it too much, but you know, he constantly gives away his location right, in, in yeah. that one specific scene, right. Saying what room he was in, hoping for it to come to an end, but until it officially comes to an end, you know, from some sort of external force, he's not going to, he doesn't have the power to stop himself. Yeah. Uh, and not, you know, not just that, I love the aspect of, there's a little bit of anger there as well. You know, again, you know, for one reason or another, he sees the bank, he sees the financial establishment, the government being responsible for taking away the life that he knew that he grew up with. And his way of getting back what he had lost is, to essentially steal as much money as possible. And obviously, you know, there, there's some fun to be had in that as well. The, the adventures of pretending to be another person, see the country fly for the first time in a cockpit. But it, it's, it, there's some dark scenes. There's some dark uh, overtones to that movie that uh, you get with Spielberg, right? He, he dusts them on there. It, it's not something that, that is a cornerstone of the movie. It's a nice little touch uh, that he throws into a movie like that, which I really enjoy. Spielberg too is pretty infamous for uh, including these family dynamics. Like he grew up in a broken home, and his I watched a, a great, highly recommend HBO. It's a Spielberg. Uh, they did a Spielberg documentary. It's like two and a half hours long. Really yeah. good. Um, it's it's a combination of kind of like paying homage to all of this stuff, and then also telling you a little bit about him. He grew up in a, in a home with a mom and a dad, and ultimately the mom had an affair with the dad's best friend. And like, and so this exactly. dad's best friend was around the home, you know, a lot and was like kind of his uncle, you know, you know how that is. Like when your dad has a friend, like they kind of become your uncle or slash part of the family. So yeah. then, you know, she left and his dad never really like acknowledged it. And like no one, it was kind of swept underneath the rug for everyone to pass and aggressively deal with. So he, he is often includes these themes because it's something that he directly understands. Um, so close encounters of the third kind is a classic example where there's a, a huge divorce kind of, family struggle thing going on amidst the alien stuff. And really that's what the movie's about. But uh, so you'll often see that in Spielberg movies, like kids come to terms with adults and adults not, you know, being maybe less mature than the kids even. So it's not uncommon for Spielberg to do this, but he's one of the masters at it. Yeah. And it's a great way to reach your audience and reach a a various kind of sect of the audience, right? Because people are going to respond to that. Some people that might not have experienced that in their life, it'll go right over their head. It'll just be, a random line of dialogue or a random scene in the movie that's just passed over uh, for other people that can kind of uh, recognize that or have had something like that happen in their lives. It makes them feel attachment to, to the character, to the storyline. They're yeah. essentially getting an entire new plot to the movie, a whole new depth of character that uh, you would normally miss out on. Absolutely. That's uh there are quite a few examples, yeah, with Spielberg that does that. I didn't know that about his history. I'm going to have to check that out on HBO. Yeah, highly recommend. So who gets, who do you think gets the most buckets in this movie, which is our category for best acting? I'd, Martin Sheen. Okay. I really like Martin, I like, I like Martin pick Sheen. There. Yeah, I really like Martin Sheen's character in the movie. The Southern uh, he, Lawyer. The Southern Louisiana Lawyer. Yeah. He, <laughs> and he's cold, isn't he? Uh, like, literally saying to to Leonardo asking him like, why are you with my daughter? Like you're significantly better than she is. Uh, what are you doing? And that, that's just the reality of certain families, right? These, these high profile 
um, you know, waspy families. They just, everything is so, uh, you know, first level. Like they have to, everybody has to match up to a certain way. And if you don't, they'll even kick you out, even if you're their own daughter. I just, I found that to be very interesting. And, and Martin Sheen, you know, he can take on such a different type of role. Uh, but being a Louisiana waspy lawyer definitely suits him. Yeah. He pulls that off. No doubt. You know, that, the whole idea of them, you know, making her, uh, Amy Adams plays their daughter, making her get an abortion, you know, and like, because uh, cause they can't because they can't be seen with a pregnant daughter that's unmarried, right. and that and that whole scene where they're like sitting on the couch like singing along to that. I hate that scene. I know it, it makes my skin crawl, and like it, that's the whole point, right? It's like that's it's kind of showing you look into that culture. Um, you know, it kind of shows you that maybe a, a, a nuclear family that's still technically put together may not be as put together as. Uh, you know, as, as people think, and that maybe right. the, the divorce family might have it more together. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a good pick. And one I hadn't thought about, I mean, I got to go and this will segue sort of our next topic. It's, it's probably my favorite DiCaprio movie. You know, my position on DiCaprio. Yeah. I do. You, you know, I, 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 uh, I mean, I'd like to make fun of him a lot. I feel like he overacts, I feel like he's a little, um, he's a little uh, overhyped in terms of his acting. Uh, but this, this is the perfect DiCaprio role, man. Like, He's cool. He's handsome. He's able to like uh, you know, manipulate people and like play himself, kind of like a weird uh, hyper hyper version of himself on those. Yeah, so yeah. That, that really works for me when he can do that. And any other examples are Wolf of Wall Street. Uh, so like he, you know, he, you know, I'm not saying he, he's at all like that, but he can play like the cool, fun, handsome guy that that you know that can uh, everyone likes. And that's yeah. that's what I feel like the character does. So. But this one is it's more subtle. You know, he has to do. A lot. He has to play a 15 year old kid all the way to like a, you know, 25 year old man who's a lifelong criminal. Uh, and I feel like he nails each aspect of it and he can do that. There's a lot, of, there's not a lot of actors you cast that can do play that. No, absolutely. Well, and also like maintain that balance, right. Between pretending to be a 25 year old man while you're actually a 17 year old character. Right. And you see that come out occasionally with the, him constantly drinking milk, you know, and, and right. kind of making these little quips, something like a child would do. Uh, it's just, again, it's a, it's a very cleverly written movie uh, that does not cake on some of the stuff that, you know, I don't want to jump to jump to inception because we're talking about Leonardo, but certain things, you know, there's just like, we get it as an audience. You can, that's just a very nice light touch of, uh, of some childhood behaviors that Leonardo is putting on his character that, you can remind yourself, oh, this this is a 17-year-old kid that's actually just doesn't, he's kind of confused and lost in the world. Yeah, he does a great job in that. I do kind of curious, I'm curious about this, Sam, what your thoughts are. Uh, as I was looking through this, this is the first, and from what I can tell, last time Leonardo and Spielberg have worked together since 2002. Why is that? I mean, he's making, what, four plus five, I guess, with with Hanks now. Did, do you think there was a, an issue with the working it's a working situation. I don't know. That is interesting. And, and it is weird. All the, seems like all the famous directors that DiCaprio works with end up using him again. You know, Christopher Nolan right now, Quentin Tarantino is about to cast him again, his new movie. Um, and so it seems to be, he genuinely has good experience with him. And uh, you know, Scorsese, probably most famously been in like four Scorsese movies. Uh, I don't know. I haven't read anything about like if they had any kind of issues when they were filming, but I do know that uh, Abagnale was not, pumped about this casting when he, he was like uh he didn't think he could be a suave 
as Abagnale thought he himself was, which is, you know, kind of a very Abagnale thing to say. Yeah. But like, are you serious, dude? Like, did you, like, this is five years after Titanic, the biggest movie of all time at that point. He, DiCaprio was the, like, literally the biggest heartthrob of, in the world at that point. Yeah. Like, what, what was not charming about him? I found that interesting. Um, but I'm curious know. who he would have picked in lieu of Leonardo. Yeah. 2002, who would he have picked? Yeah, right. Yeah. Robert I mean, Johnny Jr. or something. Like, I, I'm curious who yeah. that would have been. Yeah, well, there, I have a, yeah, there's a, there's a casting what if later we'll discuss. But yeah, I mean, well, so what do you think? Is this, is this all time DiCaprio or is this, uh, is this, you know, a top three DiCaprio? Where, where does this fall in your DiCaprio pantheon? Uh, this would definitely be top three, no question about it. Wolf of Wall Street holds in, holds in pretty high. Yeah. I was going to mess with you and say Revenant was his best performance, but <laughs> I don't feel like well, the old Academy stuff. agrees with you. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> nah, <laughs> yeah, a lot of grunting. Yes, I mean he just got robbed that one year. Uh, Wolf of Wall Street now was was phenomenal. I would definitely say Catch Me If You Can would, would probably follow up on number two, rounding it out. With with DiCaprio, I, I kind of get thrown around because it depends on the day. Sometimes I really like Beach. I watched Beach once and I hated it. I watched it the second time, I loved it, and then I couldn't even get through it the third time. So I don't know. <laughs> I think this is, this is two still, years after Beach too, that, and, yeah. and Beach kind of flopped. I, ironically, I'm reading the novel right now. I've never seen the movie. Uh, I'm reading the novel because I really like the author. Uh, the author is Alex Garland of the novel, and he has written Ex Machina. And Annihilation, two two sci-fi movies that are phenomenal. So I really like Alex Garland. So now I'm reading the beach. It's funny you mentioned that. Yeah, I mean, if you should check, definitely check out the movie because I'm going to after. He's a really tough character to like, right? But that's also like the point. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, he does a good job. It's just uh, in the the movie itself, you just kind of have to be in a a weird state of mind because it goes through a lot of different segments. I imagine you're running that into the book. I'd be interested to pick up that book as well after it's good. After reading it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so he plays Richard, right? Does he play Richard, like the main character? Yeah. That, yeah. yeah. So I, that's what I thought. And I knew that this was a movie when I started reading it. I can't believe they cast DiCaprio in that character. Like, <laughs> like insane cast, probably to capitalize on his popularity, but then that it ended up rebounding because it's, he just doesn't work in that role. So that's why bombs but no man and there's like a very distinct scene i can't wait for you to watch and we'll we'll maybe we'll consider doing that for like a yeah that'd be good we'll definitely podcast yeah. but um there's a very distinct segment of that movie where it's exactly what you always talk about it's that overacting i'm just like oh man this is i can't tell if he's doing such a good job or if he's doing a terrible job right <laughs> i can't make up my thing, mind. right is he terrible or awesome i don't know but I, what i don't what i do know is i don't like not knowing so Oh man! All right, so um, yeah. the, the six man slash woman awards are, are award for uh, the actor or, or actress that makes the most of their limited screen time. Sort of a bit player. Uh, mm-hmm. We want to pay some some respects to who is uh, that award for you in this movie? Catch me if you can. I mean, I would still probably go with Martin Sheen. I think he killed his role. Um, I also was curious what the odds were for if you would talk like that because you're. Uh, professional lawyer. I was curious if you would uh, ever take that accent on during a meeting. Mm, I should. Yeah, that's something I should consider. I feel like I'd be taken more seriously. Potentially. Yeah. Uh, uh, outside of that, I think the mom was very well cast. Um, yeah. You're you're familiar that my favorite movie is Scarface, and I loved coming across the fact that Scarface had some sort of small influence in in this movie, or at least Brian De Palma did. Uh, he was living in France at the time while Spielberg was looking for an actress to play the mom and he wanted an authentic 
woman from France, a, a French actress, not, mm-hmm. not an American actress that was French. And so he reached out to De Palma and he said, Hey, while you're there, you know, please keep an eye out for me. And De Palma came across, um, I, I apologize. I can't remember her. What was her name? Do you remember? I don't, I can pull it up here in a second. Uh, time, okay. But, uh, no, I, I just, I enjoyed that. That was, that was a, as a small role, but an important role and authenticity was huge, especially because of the story of how they met at the war. Right. And Christopher Walken constantly were revisiting that night and, and having somebody, you know, uh, there's a difference between a, an actress that has French roots and plays a French character versus a French actress that's just playing a character. And I really enjoyed it. I thought she did a great job. Yeah. The, I mean, her name is uh, Natalie Bay playing uh, Paula Abagnale. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I agree. Like that's a character that if that, if those scenes didn't work, then the whole movie falls apart. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the, the walk in, uh, walk in her relationship as Abagnale senior and, and his wife have to work in order for there to even be any drama, really. So, uh, yeah, I agree. It's, it is really good. Um, she was really good. And so the scenes where you could tell, you couldn't tell whether she could actually understand because English was her second language. So right. the scenes, you know, the idea was that, I guess, that Walken didn't speak any French, but yet he somehow, you know, wooed her. And, um, and now she speaks, you know, English as her second language. So, you know, th- those scenes really were because she may not have understood English as, yeah. as yeah. yeah. And it also kind of softens the blow. I think, I don't know if this was by design. I would imagine because it's Spielberg. It was, you know, her role as an immigrant into this country coming with a soldier from the war. Uh, you, there, there's some understandability in the, in the idea that she would want to jump ship almost when she sees the person that she was married to that brought her to, I mean, France after world war two was not in a good position. So she was now in the United States prospering, uh, and I'm with, you know, a wealthy household with, with her husband and the husband had these IRS troubles, which we never really understand what happened with that, uh, what the IRS problems were, but she then, you know, sees the writing on the wall and makes the move to the, the president of that club, his friend, right. And remarries essentially to somebody secure. She doesn't go down with the ship. I don't know. I, I still grew to not like her very much, but it makes it more understandable. She's a, an immigrant that does not want to go back to being poor in the U.S., so she finds someone else to go to that is a little more stable. Right, like she likes the finer things, you know. She, she likes when they lose the house. Like it's like a huge deal for her. She's like crying as he's taking her. And, of course, he's trying to uh, put her in the spin zone, you know, spin it positively. Yeah. And that's, that's Walken's character. But, uh, it, you know, it was. And it's hard to play a character that's unlikable like that. It seems so fickle and... Um, only, only into the finer points in life. Uh, but you know, like you said, that, that I didn't, I didn't think about the immigrant aspect, like the, uh, the, the wanting to avoid poverty and having been in it for likely her entire life. Right. Uh, that makes sense. It gives her a little extra motivation that may not have existed if she'd just been some American chick, right? Yeah, exactly. exactly. I got, so I got walking, uh, you know, to, to play the end your yang on this. And I, I think this might be, this might be Pete walking right here, um, which, you know, Walken has kind of become the weird butt of every acting joke with people doing impressions of him. Man. Like he kind of plays like a lot of like um, like ridiculous versions of himself in a lot of movies. Uh, like I think uh, you know Wedding Crashers, for instance, like just the weird, bizarre dad. Like that's just yeah. such a walk-in role. But this was you know this is a, a character that I feel like could have been cast by a lot of different people, like a lot of different like cool type people. Um, that, that were around at the time. Uh, uh, the guy and uh, I can't remember his name. You'll probably remember the guy from Goodfellas and, and Blow, um, the dad. Mm-hmm. What's his name? Uh, 
you know what I'm talking about the main character in Goodfellas. You know what I'm talking about. I do yeah. know who you're talking about. Yeah, but, yeah, uh, yeah. Oh my God, people are probably screaming at the radio right now listening to this. I can't yeah. think of his name. That's really annoying. I'll, I'll remember it at some point. That guy, like the, you know, that I could see you know a lot of different other people that could slide into this uh, and play kind of this character. But Walken, I thought was an interesting choice and one that could have been distracting, but I, it works. I think he's really, really, really good in this movie. Nah, and he just like mom, like he has to be believable. Um, and, and his relationship with DiCaprio has to be believable for the whole thing to work. And it just does. I mean, you could tell DiCaprio is hanging on his every word every time he gives him some, like, you know, knowledge, some advice. And, uh, and that, that's really good. And it kind of goes into the ISO play, our next segment, which is the, uh, the greatest acting scene by a performer. I got that walking scene when he's at dinner, or I guess lunch maybe. There, it's Frank, uh, his son, Frank Jr. and Sr. sitting together at a nice restaurant. It's after... Uh, after they're divorced and um, Frank is, you know, the son has told uh, Walken, his dad, that he's now an airline pilot and Walken, I don't know if he really believes it, but he, he's at least telling himself that this 17 year old kid suddenly a pilot suddenly has all his money. Uh, Walken tells the story of meeting, you know, his, his French ex-wife, uh, which he's told him a million times, but then he break, kind of breaks down and it's a real emotional scene. He's both proud of Frank Jr. But then also kind of mourning what was his life. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and uh, you know, I don't think people think of Walken as a good actor per se. I don't think anyone would say that, but I thought he was really, really good in this movie. And that's something I hadn't noted until a rewatch. No, I agree. We actually have the same thing for the ISO play. I had the exact okay. same the emotional scene in the bar. I also liked that they had run that scene. I'd read it. They did that scene quite a few times and they weren't expecting him to, to take such an emotional approach to it. And that Leonardo actually was afraid that he had a heart attack. That was the scene that we see in the movie is like, on the other end of the camera, you're seeing some legitimate fear <laughs> right. in the, in Spielberg and Leonardo, like thinking that, that something happened to Walken. I also want to just jump back real quick, Sam, because this is really funny. It kind of shows a little bit of our friendship, the history we have, the way we think. I have literally written down for Christopher Walken's role that I have not seen very many roles where he's actually playing a role and not just some stereotype of himself. So we essentially had the exact same thing. <laughs> that is really funny. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, because like literally like his role in Pulp Fiction, this role, and then in Bru- in Bruges, right? Is, that's a, He's in that movie, correct? With, no, uh, he's not, not in Bruges. Uh, he, he's, what is uh, with? That's Ray Fiennes in, in Bruges with uh, Colin Farrell. What's the one with uh, Brad Pitt, young Brad Pitt on the couch? And oh, no, that's true Walker, romance. There. True romance. Okay, there it is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's a gangster. Yeah, yeah. He has the, the eggplant scene with uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, that he's a good actor. It's ridiculous to say that he, that he isn't, but he's like, I don't know, some aura of his personality has just like been created for some reason. I mean, obviously because it's just so unique, and he's just realized it was easier for him to just play a stereotype of himself in movies because that's what people wanted to see. And I mean, it's smart. I mean, it worked for him. Um, but yeah, no, I agree with you hundred percent. That emotional scene at the bar where he's reliving that moment of, uh, kind of winning over his wife and then the realization that it's gone now and that he was once a, a pretty pivotal person. Now he's very on uh, you know, top of the ladder. He had his own business. He was doing well. And now it's all kind of falling apart. And to your point, you know, he, he's proud of his son, but he also knows that his, his days are numbered. Uh, there's only one way for it to really end. He knows that. And I think that's where the later scene comes up where he's saying, you can't stop. If you stop, you get caught. 
that's essentially it. Yeah, and then segueing to the, the later scene where he's like in the kitchen and Hanks, the, the FBI, uh, Tom Hanks' character, the FBI agent's in there, and he's yeah. like trying to get him to give up his son. He's like, you don't give up your son. You'll know. I can't do it. That's sort of my intent. But here's the thing. Don't leave mail. How many times have people left mail on the table? I don't that, know. Like, this is like the classic. It happened in True Romance, too. And in fact, Walken's character in True Romance tracks down the main character with mail on the fridge. Yeah. It's like the exact same way. Happens in uh, No Country for Old Men as well. It's very dangerous just to leave your mail thrown, scattered about. Right. Yeah. So for all you listeners that are going to commit some sort of federal crime, don't you're leave running your away mail. You're killer. Yeah. Yeah. Or you're doing that. Yeah. Don't leave your mail out uh, because the, these agents in these movies will, will look for that. Uh, mm-hmm. you know. But yeah, it, Walken's good. Uh, and I was shocked to see that he wasn't up for, I feel like this is a, cl- a classy example of a movie where, and maybe if this came out now, this would happen, but a movie where like an actor that's like, never been in a role that the, the Oscars could even perceivably give the award to. I'm surprised he wasn't up for best supporting just because, you know, kind of like give him a lifetime achievement award. Like, Hey, Chris Walken, you've been around, like everyone knows who you are. You're good. Uh, now here's a role we can actually like, you know, nominate you for, Yeah, I don't know. I haven't, I didn't, I don't know, but not to my knowledge. I mean, I can't yeah. think of any role he has. Neither can I. Um, and because he's always playing kind of the zany characters or these little bit parts that, that he doesn't have enough, uh, enough of a part to really, you know, to get nominated for anything. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, no, I, I, when I watched it the second time, I was, I was like, wow, DiCaprio's great. Uh, everyone's great. And that it's rare when you watch a movie where everyone's locked in, fully into their characters. Uh, and this is one where just everyone's good. And I, I like to play casting what ifs a lot, like what if this person was in it, but I just didn't find myself needing to do that with this because everyone's good. No, I couldn't either. And, and stop me if this is something you want to get into a little bit later. But that's another aspect of this movie I find so appealing is just how many directions this movie could have gone down, right? Because of the amount, how long it's been in, in process, right? The, I think the film rights for this movie were sold back in 1980 when the book was published in the first place, right? So it was very slow to come about. And obviously there were a lot of directors and, and with directors come actors uh, attached to, to this film. So it, it's kind of crazy to think about this what ifs and because this had such a kind of edge of your seat cat and mouse feel to it but if you imagine uh david fincher taking on the role of director and putting kind of a social network feel on onto this movie it's a completely different role and then sam i don't know if you saw this uh can you imagine tom hanks character being played by james gandolfini tony yeah. tony soprano yeah, I know. I did see that. Um, no. <laughs> it's ridiculous to think about. Well, and, and, uh, yeah. I mean, oh, I feel God. like that's a classic example of maybe Gandolfini playing like not a villain for a little bit, and uh, maybe seeing him in sort of a you know kind of a similar character, like but not in ter- but a good guy, you know, in terms of the story. Um, it been so strange, man. I, I think it could have worked. I, I, could, I think it could have worked. Uh, I, you know, I'm not I'm not in love with Tom Hanks in this movie. I think he's good. But he's you know, good in everything he does. Yes, but in some in some some part of me kind of thinks it's kind of dopey when he does the accent, and you know, I'm like <laughs> call him right. Like he's like you know, and go, and go, go fuck yourself, go that little, little Boston accent. Like I'm just like strong accent. Yeah, yeah it's, I mean, it, it's not, it not it doesn't sound bad. Like it sounds like what how someone would talk like. But certain Next actors, slide, please. Next slide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Slide, slide. Uh, yeah, like it's Hanks is one of those. I feel like he's always playing Tom Hanks, but he he just picks the right roles to like where that works always. 
Oh, um, you know, and, and, but like he's kind of like DiCaprio in that sense where I'll always see Tom Hanks, but it just mostly works. But DiCaprio, he plays, he does pick the roles that are like frontiersmen. So he has to do like a frontiersman accent or whatever the hell that would be. Yeah, but that's true. He doesn't disappear to me. I always see Tom Hanks. I'm like, oh, it's Tom Hanks. He's like really fun. I like to watch him. But it works. I mean, it, yeah. But Gamble Vinny could would have, I think that would be, is that would have been a more adventure type casting. I know that uh, I think that was Spielberg's choice uh, was to cast Gandolfini, but um, that, oh, that would have really, uh, yeah, Spiel, that was Spielberg's original choice was wow. Gandolfini, um, which I thought was which I thought was surprising too. But I mean, it, the movie it, it it's it's probably its biggest criticism. There's a little too much going on. I mean, there's so much stuff that happens in the movie. It's long. It's like two hours and twenty minutes, yeah. and I find it really drags. After I feel like I don't really care about the lawyer stuff. I know you really like. Um, Martin Sheen, but like it, yeah, I mean, uh, the whole scene with the what the the girl. I mean, he's it's just his attempt at trying to find some stability, right, right. And, and you know, but then he goes to Louisiana and takes the bar, and then um, then of course that becomes like a re- recurring thing. Like, how'd you pass the bar exam? How'd you pass the bar exam? Um, but here it's I, not that hard. I, I, yeah, right. Yeah, it's super easy. I mean, it is it, it, <laughs> the biggest the biggest trick that the bar examiners ever pulled was convincing the world that lawyers are smart. Like, I, we get it. You know, there's been a couple times now where he's, like, played these different professions, and then they do another one. It's like, okay, we got pilot. Now we've done doctor. Now we got to be lawyers. It's considered, like, I guess it's considered some sort of lofty profession, particularly back then. But, like, you know, I, 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 I think we understood that he could assimilate into a culture and we, that he was good at it. Um, and so I didn't really need, like, the third thing. But, I mean, maybe, yeah. and he, apparently he did that in real life, so it's not like it was inaccurate, but me that part drags and when, it, when i'm really wanting to get into the finally him getting caught and like they kind of do the thing where they flash back and forth in time which i mm-hmm. i don't like that but it works but i typically don't like that just because it makes me pulp fiction is your favorite movie you don't like that yeah but that, i mean you know yeah i mean I, i'm not a huge fan of that like uh, that's that's not my favorite part of pulp fiction like a lot of people get off to the fact that it does that. Like, oh, it's so smart the way it does that. But, you know, I don't, that's not like why. Started like in the it. middle of the movie, they work backwards. Right. Like, and, and, you know, that's like a good way to have a movie work and it kind of snatches the audience in. Um, but it, there's so much of it, if you think about it. Like, there's there's so much going back and forth in time. And, like, he's a, he, he's in some French prison. And it's then all of a sudden he's 15 and some dinner. And then, you know, it's like, it's, it's a lot to keep up with. Uh, and mm-hmm. it might be a little too distracting for just the common audience to, to, you know, might be one of those things I don't really care to keep up with. Yeah. Let me ask you another one, just a, a quick switch. Uh, you might've read this as well, but we were talking about how well Christopher Walken was put into that movie. Can you imagine Ed Harris taking that role? How different that would have been? Was he another, uh, what if casting? What if? Yeah. Yeah, he was on there. Yeah, he was attached to it. I was thinking, like, God, James James Gandolfini and Ed Harris. It's a completely different movie entirely. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I don't know I mean, if Leonardo would have done that. It, it really is. I mean, it's the same script, probably. Uh, you know, it, so ultimately, the dialogue's the same. You know, but, but yeah, the delivery and, and actors can change so much about the way a movie feels. Right. Uh, and direction, too. But, like, yeah, the... Uh, I mean, Ed Harris, I could see, I could see, but yeah. it would have been way more serious and it would have been less whimsical. Like Walken just always has this kind of whimsical, like maybe you work with Tim Burton so much that he just reminds me a lot of the kind of a whimsical thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't know. I could see Ed Harris being more of like a, you know, like authoritarian, you know, authoritarian dad um, yeah. and like maybe a little more, a little more conniving and like a little snakier. Uh, but, but Walken pulls it off. He's like kind of a piece of shit, but 
you know, but you like him, you know? Yeah. Uh, he's, whereas, you know, he's, he pulled himself up by his bootstraps, Sam. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The American dream. This is yeah. really what this is about. Yeah. And then the American, then the IRS stealing it from you, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. The damn government and like, you know, and, and rules are, you know, meant to be broken is, yeah. what, is what the message you should teach your kids. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, okay. So we had the same high. So play. All right. So this, this award is particularly relevant to this movie. Uh, this is the, my, my favorite Leonardo DiCaprio overacting award where we award one character for screaming, crying, drooling, uh, and or accessing in excess of what is required. Um, ironically, DiCaprio does not get this award for me. I give this award to Jennifer Gardner, who oh, shows up as, you. as the model hooker, whatever the hell was going on there. Awful she scene. tries to be like all Marilyn Monroe-y uh, and, and all breathy. Like, like I just can't, I'm not even going to try to do it, but like it, it, it's so distracting and weird and uh it's uh, the, the scene takes forever and it doesn't make any sense like like we you know he's already you know he's like what 16 or something so he's already lost his virginity to like the uh to the stewardess mm-hmm. so it's, it's not even that we need to see that happen um it, we've already noticed that he's like really good at manipulating people and like as a charmer so we don't need to see that it just seems like a glorified cameo but the thing is is jennifer gardner wasn't even famous then was like, no, right, she was up and coming. She was right. up and coming. So, like, it's not even like, you know, like, oh, I got a, I'm Spielberg and I got to sneak some famous actress in here. I hate that scene. And she's just like, I don't like Jennifer Gardner. I'm, I'm putting it out there. It's on the record. Like, I, I'm, they give me a movie where she's super good in, and I'll, you know, I'll. I'll I can't think of a Jennifer Gardner movie right now, except for the one where she, like, has, where she's like a, a Marvel comic book character yeah, I daredevil bro daredevil. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah 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 she plays electra and she has like the yeah that laughable role yeah what, <laughs> what other movie that? is she in what other movie does 13 she play? going on 30 you remember that movie i never watched ruffalo it's a, it's a romantic kind it's good but not because right. of her i mean i like mark ruffalo yeah ruffalo kind of pulls it all together uh yeah yeah, just, yeah. i just can't i can't, all right, so I can't on, huh? all right i got you yeah, no, that, that scene, I couldn't be in more agreement with you. I'm trying to think of another kind of overacted scene. Um, or just even character, too. Even a character in that point. I don't know, Sam. It's, I mean, that, that one's kind of a layup. And I think all the characters of this movie, and that's something you don't see very often in, in Spielberg movies, is, is somebody that just kind of really stands out in a negative way. Usually there's pretty consistency across the board. Yeah. Um, Spielberg exercises restraint a lot. Mm-hmm. Like, he, despite the fact that he has fantastical things happening in his movies, often like he he really doesn't. You know, I mean, he doesn't have someone just. For, I mean, okay. So another person that it kind of distracted me in his movie is like the, the like they work with Tom Hanks, like two little detectives that work with him. The, it's like the, the one the fat dopey. zombie guy who like yeah. isn't, who isn't into it at all. He's like, oh, he's, he's like always eating. He's like trying to get the little pastry yes. on the table. Yeah, yeah. Like, I'm like, come on. Like we get the fat cop. Like the fat cop doesn't give a shit about his job. Like, yeah. What's the point of this guy? Like, like what, what does he add? It's just it's weird. Like, uh, yeah. You know what? That actually makes me think. I would say the the chief detective or the the chief over Tom Hanks, the one that makes that comment. You know, in his. Uh, and his presentation about the check fraud, you know, saying, oh, those numbers actually mean something. Yeah. You should talk to my wife. She handled the checkbook. Right, 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 right. right. Yeah. I don't know. That's like an attempt at humor of like, you know, when was this movie based? The 19, so it'd be the 50s. So, or late 40s, yeah. Yeah, 50s, like 60s. Early 50s. Yeah. So, I mean, I guess that was like, 
yeah, my my wife handles the checkbook. I don't touch that. But it's just like a, I don't know. It's an unnecessary scene. Everyone laughs. I guess like, oh, like, yeah, laughs. like that's a hilarious good one, boss. Yeah, yeah. Tom kind of, kind of undermining Hanks there a little bit, uh, but hundred percent. But I guess that's kind of the point of that scene, right? Is to make Tom Hanks like feel like a, even more of a loner. Right? He's like a perfectionist at his job. Really knows what he's doing. Passionate about it, and he's surrounded by inept, you know, incompetent people. And they don't give a shit about his, like, you know, they probably think, like, oh, we're out here catching serial killers. And then you got this guy who's, like, fucking check fraud, right? Like, right. You know, yeah, exactly. probably exactly. consider it, like, a, you know, lesser, a lesser division of the FBI. Exactly. Uh, so that we're, we'll move into a couple of True or Nas, which is our, uh, which is our uh, game show segment. Uh, so I've got a couple of things. Uh, I got a couple of things. We'll, in, you know, cue the game show music now uh, for the podcast. So we'll have that planned. Um, yeah, graphic audio in the background of this. Oh, no, we'll add audio, man. Yeah, that's what that's I do. Top notch, top notch production. The barn burner, baby. All right, so uh, I'll give you a couple. I've only got a couple of, of facts about the movie. Uh, you'll have to guess whether they are true or not. Uh, and yeah. you do not know the things I'm about to say. Or maybe you do because you did some research about the movie, so you might already know these. Um, so here's here's the first. Are you ready? Yep. Okay. Right on. Uh, DiCaprio actually attempted to make and cash a fake check to understand the process involved to better shoot those scenes. Nah. He doesn't have the spine to do that. He's probably afraid he's going to get in trouble. The answer is not. You're right. Uh, not <laughs> no way. That would have nah, been a good nah, He's, he's too good of a bull, kid. He's too good, man. Like I, That's something about DiCaprio. Like he'll, he'll take on... I think he'd even like champion himself to be some sort of character, you know, character actor, but... I don't see he's not a uh, Daniel Day Lewis would do that. No question about it. He'd probably try to run up like a couple ten like tens of thousands of dollars just because he knows he can pay it off. He doesn't really care. But like he would go all the way in that. You know, Leonardo would be like, I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> Daniel Day Lewis would be like literally in prison. He would imprison himself in France for like <laughs> a year just to like get get the get into the mindset of someone that would be in prison in France. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> That's why right, we so, love him. So yeah, you're sniffing it, you sniffed it out. Good job. All right, next one, and our last one, actually, because we already discussed the first one. Um, Steven Spielberg's original choice for the role of Frank Abagnale Jr., the role played by DiCaprio, was Johnny Depp. Uh, true. That's true. What do you think about that one? I think that would have gone, I think that would have been uh, perfectly fine. 2002 Johnny Depp? When yeah, was that, Blow? When did Blow come out? That year. Uh, okay. Then, yeah. Oh, actually, man, I would have really hated to not see Blow. Blow is a phenomenal movie. Well, you probably should have shot. I mean, just because the movie was released the same year doesn't mean you couldn't have been in a boat. I think uh, Johnny Depp would have killed that. I think he would have done a great job. Yeah, that's kind uh, of... It would have definitely been a... Like, I don't think he would have done as good a job, though, maintaining the balance between being a kid, like Leonardo was able to do. I think he would be a lot more smooth and like some of the scenes of him playing like the con and, and kind of working people over would just be they, they, they would go over really well but then you know him kind of getting asking for milk and making those little snide comments about being a child uh, I think would be kind of misplaced yeah this is before Pirates of the Caribbean this is a year before Pirates of the Caribbean when he really came on the scene uh, again you know he had like his kind of like 80s you know uh, Nightmare on Elm Street kind of career, and then he bounced around a bunch of Tim Burton movies. But um, I, yeah, I think it would have been great. I think uh, Depp. I mean, Blow's kind of the same movie, right? I mean, not exactly, but kind of tracking the guy from like his, his adolescence to 
you know, told to his downfall. Like they're both doing yeah. things. Like it, he has to play a character from the age of like twenty to, you know, like in his forties. That's so, true. You know, oh, you want God, I hate the end of that movie. Uh, which one? The blow. The blow. Yeah. yeah. When he like gets a beer belly and he's like giving it another shot and it's just like, come on, man, stop, <laughs> yeah. stop. Yeah, uh, it is. It is stressful, but I guess that's the whole, you know, the whole point. I, I think it would have been fine. The question is, did he do blow because he didn't get this part? Like, did he? I wonder if he like was like, okay, I'm going to do a rival movie that's basically kind of similar, and we'll see which one is liked more. Obviously, blow. No one gives a shit about that movie anymore. It's good, but I feel like Catching If You Can probably has more cultural relevance. Maybe not. Uh, yeah, but it's because Catching If You Can is a little bit more of a family friendly movie, you know. It's true. Like, that's the Spielberg. You know, that's the, that's the Spielberg. Exactly. Spielberg makes yeah. blockbusters. You know, that, yeah. that's just how it is. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you're limited. If you're, if you're, the plot of your movie is about like trafficking cocaine, there's, there's a big sex of the, of the market that you're not going to be able to really yeah. advertise. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Um, okay. So where does this stack into your Spielberg pantheon? Uh, and do you have a Spielberg pantheon? You have a top, you have a top five Spielberg movies. Top five? I can't give you or five. Even top three. What do you, I mean, what, what comes to your mind when I say Steven Spielberg? Uh, Saving Private Ryan. There's no doubt about that. Uh, I, I'd say Saving Private Ryan is my favorite, no question. You know what, man? I don't even know. Like, because Jurassic Park and Jaws would probably finish up the, the next two. Um, but I would put it at five, but I can't think of what number four would be. <laughs> like, okay, I know what you mean. Like, yeah. hit or miss for me, man. Like, I don't, like, I'm not a, I'm not in love with the dude. I, I love the, some of his older stuff, and I really appreciate the uh you know i mean he's foundational uh of, like global cinema and i mean he he wrote the book in so many ways and so there's just like that level of respect for him everything he puts out is going to be high quality uh, i think saving private ryan was you know just in a, on a completely different level uh a lot because of the casting and tom hanks obvious role indiana jones right mm-hmm. uh, all three of them all four of them. yeah a bit yeah all three of them so it's <laughs> yeah. probably more of the early things. I didn't actually see what is the what is his newer one? I'm down here, so I didn't have access to it. Uh, play, Ready Player One. Yeah, Ready Player One. The Post. Yeah, I don't know. Oh, the Post. I thought the Post was slow. Yeah, it's a little boring. I thought it was slow, man. I also kind of think that uh, the Post was um, more of a Jeff Bezos kind of like theory. Like the New York Times came out with their movie, right? Like with Spotlight uh, or whatever. And then uh, I think Jeff Bezos was like the, I'm sorry, he's the owner of Amazon, right? The founder of Amazon. He owns the post now. Uh, I think he bankrolled that movie to like, so that his magazine, so his newspaper would have also have like a huge, you know, blockbuster type of movie. And he attached Spielberg and Tom Hanks to it. I found that movie kind of boring. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Ready Player One's fun. It's classic Spielberg. I mean, it's kind of a return to form. For him, and we haven't, we didn't pod that, but yeah, maybe you can check that out. We can pod that. I, I recently, upon watching that Spielberg documentary, kind of got reindoctrinated in him and started really going through his catalog again. Uh, obviously, I've seen you know the Indiana Jones a million times. Raiders is a top ten for me. I think mm-hmm. that there is like is the merging of what you know is what Spielberg does great, and then just the general idea of pulpy action and fun. Yeah. Uh, and then you're, you're talking to Pete Harrison Ford too at the time. Like that was just everyone operating at, at, at incredible heights. Oh, uh, no, man. Yeah, Air Force One is Pete Harrison. <laughs> yeah. Well, that now sounds like we need to do an Air Force One podcast. Get off my plane. Yeah, because I could not disagree with you more. Uh, it's certainly, <laughs> peak, certainly you know, start to beginning the peak of grumpy Harrison Ford, like curmudgeon Harrison. 
but uh that's the harrison everybody loves dude yeah, what are you yeah, talking about yeah man exactly uh but all right so i like jaws a lot and i don't know how long it's been since you've seen jaws but a long actually i watched i showed it to some of the kids down here because i really i wanted them to appreciate like a scary not scary well well-made movie so it yeah. was received very well it's i mean it's like really 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 good uh, mm-hmm. on a lot of it I mean, even the, the movie making aspects of it, like there's no one that can move a camera like Spielberg. Like he just understands how to capture a scene and make something that might be kind of dumb, like into something that's completely riveting. And that's just what he does. I wish he would work with better writers. I wish he would like pick better scripts and then, cause then he could take those and make those even better. Like I wish he was David, David Fincher always picks really good scripts to make and he's good. Yeah, but, you I know, was but just thinking Aaron Sorkin would be a great writer for Spielberg. I can't believe that's happened yet. Yeah. I mean, either. Yeah, like, so, Ann Sorkin would be good. I mean, um, but he he does pick a lot, like, this guy, the guy that wrote Catch Me If You Can't. He wrote, guess what other shit he wrote? Like, I, I was completely dumbfounded by this. This is a good script. It's fun and tight and witty, and the characters are fun. And, like, but just take, take a guess at what other movie came out. You would know it, like, around this time-ish, early 2000s, that he wrote. We actually already mentioned it. Well, it's not I mean, low, right? No, no. I don't know. What is it? He wrote the, 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 the fourth Pirates of the Caribbean, like the shitty one. Like, basically, after this movie, his career completely tanked, and he just wrote shitty blockbuster movies. They're like direct well, I mean, to Netflix. He had a layup because he had a, a biography, he had a book to go off of. Yeah, the, but yeah, exactly. I guess if you're adapting a book, it's a little easier. I don't, you know, I don't know how directly he copied dialogue or whatever, but I don't know. This is, this is a really fun script. I thought, like, when I clicked this dude, I was like expecting to see other movies that I liked and just be surprised, but you know, I was like, whoa, right this guy bombed, man. <laughs> Like he turned into a total hack after. Oh yeah. Oh wait. Uh, speed two. He wrote not speed. Speed <laughs> two. Cruise control. The one with the fucking boat. That's the best uh, one. Right. Yeah. The, you know, a classic of the, the speed franchise. Uh, and then Rush Hour two. So this guy is. I love Rush not, Hour two. Rush I'll Hour two is good. Rush Hour two is a good movie. Yeah. Rush Hour two is good, but you know. Wow. What a man. He really he went in a I'm different direction. Drinks, my friend. He went in a different direction. He did. Uh, and he, he, yeah. So uh, so. Sorry to see that. Sorry to see a man, you know, sort of, sort of torpedo after uh, such a such a high, high, high. But you know, whatever. What are you gonna do? Um, I, yeah, I, I wonder if he's listening. This is a, yeah, probably. Uh, this is a top five filler movie for me. But honestly, like, but like you said, like, Jurassic Park's up there. Jaws. to get up there with Spielberg. It's probably top ten realistically if I could really like look at them all. But uh, I'm not as high on Saving Private Ryan as, as you are. I, I like. I mean, it's obviously it's contributions to movies are. He literally invented how to shoot war scenes. I mean, like he, the first 45 minutes is incredible, but then after that, I feel like it's like, I don't really care. After mm, the D-Day scene, um, but after the D-Day scene, I'm like, ah, now it's just whatever. But that D-Day really? scene, that so movie has good. One of the best, it has one of my favorite scenes of all cinema. Yeah? Yeah. So when they're waiting for the, for the Germans to come into that small town, and they've like set all the traps, and they've done everything, but they know that like impending doom is like literally coming. And they're sitting there listening to that French song. They're sitting on the on the stoop of one of these old houses, and the guy's kind of giving a story of right before he leaves for the war. I guess he he must have been uh, like a sales clerk or something in a in a boutique show, in a boutique store. And a woman came in, and he was helping her try on a dress, and he like gave her a dress that was like two sizes too small, so her her breasts are just like popping out. And I guess he got like you can say uh, tits on here, dude. Oh, cool, man. So, yeah, yeah, yeah it's it's popping out. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he, uh, I guess, got a, uh, he got a hard on, and she saw it, 
And she was like, you know, you're about to go to war. So like, if you ever get scared, uh, if you ever feel afraid or lost, just close, take a breath, close your eyes and think of these. And she pulls down her dress and shows him her tits. And he says, yes, ma'am. And then they all just sit there and they reflect on it. Right. So like right before the end, all four of these guys are just sitting, reflecting on like the comforting, the comfort of tits. I, I, just, I really love that scene. Yeah, it's a really well-made scene. Very few people, you know, barring Spielberg can turn that scene about the comfort of tits into some sort of, you know, some sort of a metaphor of war and, and death. Yeah. Uh, but no, really, I mean, when it comes down to it, Sam, all we really care about is that and food. Yeah. So, oh yeah. If you really tag us everybody, our primal instincts for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. I'm, I feel like every time I say that, people think I'm saying Saving Private Ryan isn't good. That's not true. I just you know, why do you I, not like the movie Saving Private Ryan? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Everyone gets really triggered about that. Uh, but you know, okay. So we'll, we'll, it's it's a good, it's it's a high on the Spielberg. It's top ten probably in the Spielberg pantheon. But maybe a Spielberg podcast uh, would be in order after you watch the HBO special. I think that'd be fun. Um, all right. So time for our uh, time for our snooty reviewer segment. This is something new. Uh, so I. I just pulled up the people that gave this movie negative reviews on Rotten Tomatoes. There are eight total. Um, there are only eight uh, out of um, like two hundred something critics uh, that gave it a bad review. And I'm going to read the one little like uh, one little blurb of Mr. J. Hoberman uh, from Village Voice. He said, "Sporting a stingy brim hat and erratic Boston accent, Hanks gives a ludicrous performance." How do you feel about that? Do you feel like that's an apt criticism here? Enough to give it a yeah, a, but that was the point. <laughs> like anybody that has a Boston accent is going to sound ludicrous and ridiculous. That's the <laughs> inherent in the accent itself. <laughs> like yeah. you can say the exact same thing about every single character in The Departed. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and maybe I have to look at Hoberman's review of that. Maybe he didn't dig it hard, Departed either. But, <laughs> maybe uh, hey, Hoberman's from like, Boston. Yeah, nobody's like told him how he sounds. Like this fucking these fucking guys. The, like, how do you not give this movie a of, of not not even you don't have to give it four stars, but you got to give it like a, you need to watch this. You know the, the tomato on Rotten Tomato, not the rotten thing. Like who gives this a rotten? You they know gave that, they gave that a squish like rotten rotten tomato. That, yeah, these are eight squishes. There are eight squishes. Wow. You got a ninety six percent, but you know the four percent are like these eight people. Three of yeah, them. Sam, are- some people just like being unhappy, you know, and they want to share it with the rest of the world. They want to make other people unhappy, or or they've got some really good foresight and they're like, you know what? I bet one day some up and coming podcasters are going to come perusing through these reviews and they, I might get read and featured on the podcast. I might be my big break. Literally 17 years after you wrote this shitty review, you've you been <laughs> talking about Jay Hoberman. Shout out to Jay Hoberman with the village voice who couldn't get over the Boston accent uh, and somehow thinks this movie's bad because of it. Uh, very and interesting. Troll his ass on Twitter. Yeah, maybe you will. Maybe you will. I need to tweet him this when it comes out. <laughs> Here's a larger part. I mean, I like to criticize movies, not always don't have positive opinions of movies that everyone likes, but I know Saving Private Ryan is good. You know, I'm not going to say don't see it. It's a good movie, but I could like not like it subjectively as much as everyone else. But here's what I don't like about all these superhero movies that are coming out, Star Wars movies. Like you got these reviewers on here um, giving them bad reviews for stuff, like comparing them to fucking like The Godfather or something. It's like, yo, dude, like, that's not the intention here. These are fun popcorn movies. Yeah, ha- I feel like you have to be, you have to compare popcorn movies to popcorn movies and then artsy movies to artsy movies because comparing them to each other well, is an exercise of utility. You know, like, mm-hmm. I, and, and, you know, you know, miss me with the whole 
Invaders Infinity War is, you know, like not as good as fucking like Inglorious Bastards with an ensemble. Like, okay. okay. Like, Who makes yeah. that connection? Yeah. Like, I was okay. like, what? what? I don't believe it. Like, so these critics need to get their head out of their own asses uh, and just like review movies for what they are. But that, that's a whole nother, yeah. whole nother podcast. You know, Speed 2, I really did not think uh, uh, measured up to like a movie like Schindler's List, for example. Like, I just yeah, really I, don't think it's worth watching. Exactly. It's exactly. But like, exactly you know i often had notes of citizen kane in it really but uh you know but then you started to realize that he really wasn't able to measure up to orson wells so uh it's not worth watching the screenwriter there yeah yeah squish yeah if you could replace any character with nicholas cage which one would that be in one speaking of speed two so i had uh i had two on this one okay okay um the first was martin sheen's character damn that's what i was gonna say Nicholas Cage taking over like a Louisiana lawyer would just be (laughs) fucking priceless. However, and now you said that one, so I'm going to jump to my other. All right. So you remember the sound of the stage. You remember the scene. This is Leonardo DiCaprio's first attempt at uh, at manipulating somebody, doing a con. Right. He's trying to forge those. He's trying to get those checks um, cashed, and the bank teller is giving him some pushback. And he's like, "I'm going to go back to one of the tactics my dad taught me." And he reaches down. To grab the necklace, he reaches back up, and that bank manager, you know, brutally guy, sits down. He's like, "Son, what do you do in here?" I think during that pan up and the bank manager being Nicholas <laughs> Cage, <laughs> but it's changed good. the entire movie. It changed the whole movie. Hey, that was his only scene. Okay. <laughs> Anytime you can pan up and Nicholas Cage is there, like you've got a winner scene on your hands. Like if, if, you, oh, <laughs> man. if you can just pan up and suddenly he's appeared from from nowhere. Uh, you, you've taken what could be a, a normal scene and turned it into a transcendent cinema. Uh, yeah, I, mean, I, I really enjoyed that. I like, I, it. I like certain it. parts of me now, like really hope that that becomes a thing. Yeah, where like Nicolas Cage just randomly has like just an obscure one scene role in multiple movies going forward. It kind of becomes the Christopher Walken of like the next twenty years. That's what we need him to do. Yeah, we need him yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, the lawyer would be funny to me too, just him doing the accent and like um, him singing that song. He's got a weird edge to him, Nicolas Cage. Like, he's got a really weird. Man, he, he's really he weird. Really weird. Yeah. 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 Like, I watched Face Off recently. That movie sucks, but it's fun. And it's, <laughs> it's just one of it's a classic Nicolas Cage, like, unhinged performance. Uh, but it, it, just, it just made me just made me laugh about his mere existence. We were originally going to do Con Air. And we, we still will. Uh, it's, I love Con Air. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> what what is that like why is it like it's so bad but it's good you know i don't know i mean there's certain movies yeah, just sort of trip away like speed's good like speed's like an actually good action movie not like a funny <laughs> speed one yeah speed one's think, damn good yeah, yeah. no yeah i know like uh, but like a lot of people uh, the reason i say that is because a lot of people put speed into like the oh it's kind of goofy but funny but no like it's like yeah. die hard it's like an actual good movie yeah I agree. um but but you know connor's just kind of It'll be good, but uh, we'll talk about that more. So what are your final thoughts on Catch Me If You Can? If you had to give it a review now, uh, what would you give it? One to four barns. You can use decimal points. You can light some of those barns on fire. Or what is your oyster? What you got? Oh, man. I, I, I give it a solid 3.5 barns on fire. Yeah. It's a great, solid movie. Again, I think an excellent movie to watch during Christmas time. I think if you're trying to find it, because, you know, there's like that, that group of people I personally love. Die Hard 1 and 2 for Christmas. It doesn't feel like Christmas if I don't watch those two. 
cartoon movies. And I never would have considered putting Catch Me If You Can into that catalog. But and I, I would actually, I, I would now, uh, especially because I'm starting to get really tired of some of the, the older Christmas movies. Man, they, they're just not really updating well. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not a big Grinch fan, you know, and all and all that garbage. So uh, finding some movies that just kind of lightly approach the holidays something kind of entertaining but makes you realize where you are in the calendar year it's fun so i i'd give it a solid 3.5 that's good, that's good what about you uh i give it a three i give it a three blinds it's good i mean and i would have given it a three i think 10 years ago when i first saw it or whenever i first saw it, uh, it, it i don't know if it's better on rewatch it's just as good though. i mean, I mean the christmas thing's cool i like that and i certainly like the idea of adding other movies to kind of the, the holiday season unconventional movies like Die Hard and a lot of those movies written by the guy that uh, did uh, uh, Lead the Weapon, that guy, Shane Black. A lot of movies take place during like a long day night, long day night. And uh, what else? He did last action here. A lot of his movies kind of take place during Christmas. And have that yeah, I guess Lethal, Lethal Weapon, which one is Lethal Weapon where he's, uh, is there a Christmas theme? Yeah, they always take place. In, yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. I thought so. You, they get into like a big fight that. in the middle of the front yard, him yeah. and uh, Gary Busey, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, and there's like all those lights and stuff. That's right. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, but it takes place like out in L.A., so it's not, you know, it's not like classically okay. no, Christmas. No. But, yeah. right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's good and, and certainly what I'd recommend uh, to anyone that hadn't seen it somehow. Uh, so rewatchability, how do you feel about this? Is this one you would buy on Blu-ray or just like rent on iTunes? Or God, no. Happen no, to catch it if it's on TV? Happen to catch it if it's on TV. It's a TNT. Okay. So you don't own this one? No, by no means. Who would nowadays, Sam? You know as well as I do, the content that's coming out now is just too good. It's, it's hard to actually sit down and watch rewatch some movies. That's why I really enjoyed doing this one because I, I'd seen it before, but it had been a long enough time that it was kind of new to me. Yeah, but there's I agree. so much good stuff coming out. There is. I, I'm still, I'm an old, I mean, I, I love watching movies. Like, I love movies more than serialized television. I always will. I just yeah. love the art of movies and what's behind it. And so I hope they never disappear. But So I still buy movies. But yes, I understand how the general public would. You actually purchase movies to keep? Yeah, I buy them on, uh, on iTunes, actually. Uh, and get them downloaded to is Mac. That, is that like a, uh, what am I trying to say? Like a, uh, you feel responsible or like a, because you could just steal those very easily. Just put in free stream that movie. Yeah, no, I don't like do that. Support. I don't do it. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I don't hate anybody that does, but I know if I if I like a movie enough to like where I don't want to just rent it, because you can rent anything on iTunes now too, like and stream it straight to your Apple TV. Uh, and that's what I'll do sometimes. But uh, so this one I bought. Uh, I saw like it was to rent for like four bucks or buy for ten bucks. I was like, well, shit, why don't I just you know freaking good for you, buy Sam? It? You're keeping you're keeping that a very strong part of the the movie economy alive for the rest of us to leech off of. <laughs> I mean, I hope so. I hope so. Uh, no, <laughs> you know, the, the fact is a, a new star Wars or Marvel movie will never cease to make a billion dollars in the box office. So exactly. That's doing okay. Yeah. Now the 40, $40 million dollar, like little thriller movies like this are becoming less common, but do we think this movie gets made now? Imagine if like this script comes out and Spielberg's like, all right, I need 50, 50 million to make this thriller con man movie. Uh, and cost, costing way more than like a real indie movie, but also not not costing as much as a superhero movie. Like, yeah. do you think this movie gets made now? Like, what would be the equivalent of this right now? Yeah, I mean, if Spielberg said, I want to make a movie, some people are going to throw money at him to do it. Yeah, I mean, you're seeing less and less of them, Sam. I mean, that, that's just the reality of it, which sucks. I think they're going to come out in a different medium uh, because there's still a lot of people that like 
that type of movie mm-hmm. film, if you will. Actual um, movies. Yeah. yeah. Actual movies, like a, you know, classic storyline. And I, I really dislike the, uh, the move to like motion graphics and what's the, the whole green screen thing. I, I, res- yeah. I yeah, I the CGI. Thank you. I, I like it, man. I mean, I enjoy watching it, but now it's like I can't even trust shit that I see anymore. Yeah. Like, I don't know if like that scene where you are, like, if, the, if these actors are just like standing in front of a big green screen. Oh, I could not agree with you more on this. Yeah, I, I can't is. stand it, dude. And like, you, I think that's another reason why you're seeing less of these like more. Uh, I mean, Tom Hanks kind of a, he he kind of jumped into it, but he jumped into it more of like the voice or overture, right? Like narrating he, those uh, cartoon characters. Yeah, like Polar Express. Some of these other actors, you know, I can't stand it. That's why I do like Scorsese doesn't really mess with that very much. And I don't I can't really think of a lot of like Leonardo DiCaprio movies where they do that because even in even in The Revenant, I mean they went to those places, right? They were filming in like the Northwest and then temperatures changed and they got on a plane and flew down to to uh, Argentina to finish the rest of that movie, you know, and that's the kind of thing that I like to see in a, in a movie. I feel like I'm actually going somewhere with them. That's the whole point of a movie, right? Like yeah. it's a see shit you can't see other one. I mean, yeah, which I, I guess re- that works, right? You can't. I can't travel through the universe in real life, and nor can they take a camera up there. So you got to do what you got to do. You see some really cool things, but yeah, it's fine if you have to use a green screen to display a plan. It doesn't really exist. You know, but if you're going to shoot it, if you're going to create a planet that's a jungle planet and you don't take a camera out to an actual jungle and shoot it there, rather you just shoot it in front of green screen, like that pisses that's me off. Lazy. Like, yeah, go, I mean, you know, you've got the resources, a lot of these movies, like the, all the Marvel movies. I like, I like the Marvel movies. I love superhero movies, always have. I love pulpy movies, but they're really bad with it. Like, they shoot all of them in Atlanta on a soundstage, and, and no matter what, like, it could be like some, some like beach. You know, some, you know, some area that's like a beach and they'll shoot in front of a green screen mm-hmm. and like put some sand down. They'll be standing there, but then they'll be, you know, an ocean green screen. It's just the like principal editors of these movies need to start getting bigger credits because uh, like I would be if, if that's how things are going to start moving forward. I'm having less respect for the actual director and I'm having a shit ton more respect for the person leading the editing. Yeah, the graphics chart. designers. Yeah. Like the, oh my like the God. It's true. It's true. I mean, but and that's what I like about and, and this is an interesting turn this conversation, but it's good. I'll. Like the new Star Wars movies, um, they 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 build a lot of the shit. They, they build sets for the actors to be on, interact with. They mm-hmm. if they can do it on in real life. Like if they're like, for instance, my example, a beach planet. Like if there's a beach planet, they go to a beach. They build a set. You know, they have the actors walking around in the sand, and it makes it more organic. It makes you feel like you're there, and it's what creates. That's what Star Wars was built on. That's what all this you know the story to like Jaws. Spielberg didn't shoot it in a tank. You went out in the ocean and you can tell like it and it makes it more believable. Uh, it's funny that what made movies all such a success, everyone's trying to get away from now. And I think it's going to, first of all, all these movies are going to be horrible in 10 years when we watch, rewatch them and the CGI that once held up is laughable. And, uh, and you're like, Oh shit. Not only is like, I realized that little villain looks weird, but also like the place they are looks weird. Like that, that doesn't look like real. And it's going to make it seem like a freaking B movie. Yeah. Um, it's going to really change like the crop of cinematographers coming out too, you know, because people are, that are originally focused on some of the older, uh, more tried and true methods that people like Spielberg actually even kind of created or popularized are going to start now focusing a lot more on the technical aspect of things. And I mean, I don't know, man, I don't want to shit on it too much because they are entertaining. Like I, I enjoy these movies. 
and there's like a ba- happy balance yeah. to, to be had, you know, like you lose, you know, some of that real world situational awareness that the actor is going to have, but then you kind of get to include a lot of scenes that you probably wouldn't have just physically been able to pull off in yeah. the first place. Yeah. I get that. I mean, I, there is a balance. I mean, you know, shoot it if you can in real life and augment with CGI. That's the way I, yeah. I feel about it. But, uh, no CGI, yeah. no CGI in this movie though. Catch me if you can. That's what no, we're talking if, about. If any, yeah. If, uh, no CGI. I mean, if, if there's any, very little, um, very little CGI in this movie. Uh, so yeah, man, we'll, we'll appreciate you coming on. This has been uh, episode eight of in the can. We talked catch me if you can here with Steve, AKA quiz of the slot, AKA peace Corps protector. And, uh, and I'm glad you could join, man. Glad to have you on. Glad you could hey, sit down. Pleasure, buddy. I really yeah. enjoyed doing this. Let's make a regular habit of it. We'll be back. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah. No question about it. Because I, I need somebody to talk to, talk movies with. Sure. Uh, well, this has been part of the Barnburner Podcast Network. You can read my stuff. I'm the chief. You can read Steve's stuff. You can put it in sloth at the-barnburner.com. We have to check out the site. We got a lot of different stuff on there. Uh, and until the next episode of In the Can, Steve, it's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Take care. Sure.